Hello again, everybody, and thanks for tuning into this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. As you know, the CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. A study cited in The Fix, an e-magazine dedicated to issues around addiction and recovery, reported that transgender people have a significantly higher risk for any of the many substance use disorders than the general population, with the rate estimated as high as 30%, over three times the 9% general population rate, and that goes back to 2012. In 2018, SAMHSA uh, completed their National Survey on Drug Use and Health, and that doesn't even identify transgender people in their data. Given this kind of forgotten status by the branch of the federal government created to address substance abuse issues, is it any wonder that our treatment system regularly fails to meet the needs of the transgender community? Dr. Frederick Dombrowski, with more credentials after his name than I can read, Dr. Frederick Dombrowski, overachiever, <laughs> has worked in the field of mental health counseling since 1999 and is currently a professor for the University of Bridgeport. Dr. Dombrowski specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectal behavioral therapy, as well as in the treatment of transgender individuals. His work with marginalized populations has contributed to his receiving several awards for his commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dombrowski. Thank you so much for having me, and I sincerely appreciate being here. Well, we're glad to have you. I think it's going to be a great learning opportunity for a lot of us, including myself. Um, and I do have to apologize up front to everybody. Um, there's a good chance that my dog will bark in the background. And if you've heard this podcast before, you've heard her uh, let everybody know she's available for questions uh, as we move forward. So, I, again, I apologize in advance for that. I love dogs. <laughs> um, my first question is, I'm really somewhat surprised by the exclusion of the transgender community from SAMHSA's data, from the NSUDH data. Um, do you think it comes from an assumption that the use patterns of transgender individuals simply mirror those of lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities, or is it something else? Well, I'm really happy that you started off with that question. Unfortunately, what happens when we kind of consider the uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender questioning uh, communities is that we tend to lump each community into one big giant community. And each community has their own needs. They have their uh, the things that they struggle with. They also have different supports and even different laws that we have seen. Although the laws have changed uh, here in Connecticut, roughly I think it was like five or six years ago, it, which allowed same sex and same gender marriage. There were even instances back prior to that law where if you had a heterosexual couple and an individual transitioned to female, that couple is now a lesbian couple. But if they were married, the state still had to honor their fully lesbian marriage, even mm -hmm. though same-sex marriage was illegal at the time. So unfortunately, what you're kind of identifying is common that we lump all of these communities together. And sometimes we will assume that the research about with the experiences of gay and lesbian people and bisexual people will mirror the experiences of transgender people. And then also 
we don't really have a full number to the amount of transgender people that there are out there. So some of the some of the barriers to the data could be that we don't have enough people that are participating in the research. Uh, can you follow up for our listeners? Just some uh, information that will help us understand kind of the gen. You know, again, it's general. I know we can't paint with a broad brush, but the uniqueness of of the transgender population compared yes, to the LGBT. Absolutely. So um, LGB, my 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 error. <laughs> No worries, no worries, and and that's uh, I, I really uh, appreciate your willingness to even talk as open as you are because we tend to say LGBT while not really including the transgender experience. So within the LGBTQ communities, as I was saying, each community is unique in their needs. What I don't particularly like about lumping the needs of transgender individuals with the needs of, let's say, someone who identifies as homosexual or someone who identifies as lesbian is that their gender identity is specifically the thing that is the identifier, whereas in other cases, it's sexuality for people that would experience transition or people that are transgender, their qualifying factor would be that they're it's their gender. It's their gender affirmation, the gender that they connect with. So gender and sexuality are different. Yep. So the most people who identify as gay or lesbian, although there is a coming out process and that can be very hard, as for people that are experiencing gender transition is more complicated as they may have to get they may have to get surgeries, they may have to be approved. Uh, hormone replacement therapy. But not only that, they'll also, a lot of people will apply for a name change. They may struggle to have to get their gender markers changed on their official documentation. So there is much more of just a, a process with documentation that exists. And these things don't necessarily exist within the gay, lesbian, or bisexual communities. And I'm glad, you know, that, that outlines big differences. And, and I'm glad that you had mentioned um, that gender identity and sexuality are two separate thoughts because it often does get lumped together. And when I did some of my research before talking, in everything that I read, they really were, were the writers were very uh, focused on making that point. And I, I think you have to be. Um, and, and I think that's just kind of American culture because when somebody happened to see um, – somebody who uh, was a transvestite, there was all kinds of other assumptions about that as opposed to all you know is that that person, you know, wears the clothes of the opposite uh, gender that they identify with. I mean, I, but we created so much around it because of this unknown and, and the fear uh, that goes with it. Uh, for many people, uh, for most Americans, actually, the first real introduction to a transgender person was the very was very public. It was the transition of Caitlyn Jenner. You know, her life at that point in time became one of ridicule, uh, of bigotry, and, and even misogyny. She handled that all really incredibly well. I was very impressed by that. You know, at least in the public eye and what we saw, um, perhaps aided by the resilience developed through the Olympic training in 1976. Um, you know, that would create an incredible amount of resilience. You know, what is all, you know, what that vitriol does, however, is it sends a horrible message 
to children and adolescents and even adults who may struggle with gender identity, especially if their parents and loved ones are especially negative. How does that impact that young person's already fragile self-image? That's a, that's a great question. And when I consider the experience of younger people that are living with gender dysphoria, so this kind of goes to the diagnosis aspect of trying to help people explore their gender. And within the DSM, there is the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. That diagnosis exists not for people that would have a connection to a gender other than something that's assigned at birth, but rather that diagnosis is given because of the dysphoria that comes with that feeling. So we see, if you take just traditional adolescents, people that are not, uh, people that are cisgender, we'll say people that are cisgender, cisgender means that you are not transgender or you are not experiencing gender dysphoria. Adolescence is really difficult anyways. So if you take someone who is living with gender dysphoria and they feel disconnected from every aspect of their body, there's a misconception that's only about the genitals. And I appreciate you talking about, you know, there's uh, the belief that it was like driven by sex and people would look at, you know, people that would dress up as transvestites and make assumptions about that. But for people that are living with gender dysphoria, I mean, it's brutal. The voice that comes out of your mouth is not you. When you look in the mirror, you see the, this body that you're wrapped up in, but it's not you. And then in addition, when the vitriol comes out and the transphobic statements come out, that unfortunately signals to the person that they are not worth being respected. And within that, we can see a lot, a lot of people experiencing depression and anxiety and also being disconnected from their loved ones and being disconnected from supports. And therefore, they may turn to substances for sure to try to manage that. So there is a lot of co-occurring anxiety and depression and substance use specifically within the trans community. And I could respect, I could respect when people are ignorant about what it means to be trans or when people are ignorant about gender dysphoria. And I think a lot of times people, when they are speaking out of their ignorance, that's coming from a place that they want to protect people. They don't want to hurt people. And I usually approach people from that perspective of people are trying to do something good, even if what they're doing may not necessarily be the right thing. However, with a lot of these invalidating statements, that could still make someone feel that they are a mistake, that they shouldn't be alive, that people don't love them. And that's one of the reasons why we see much higher suicide rates or even suicide attempts for people that experience gender dysphoria than we would see with uh, just members of the population that are not of the LGBTQ communities. I think if as adults, we are honest with ourselves about what adolescence was like for us, questioning everything about ourselves for the average adolescent is normal. Who am I? What am I being? There's always that, there's often that my parents don't love me. They don't understand me. But when you add the issues of gender dysphoria in there, that is just grow exponentially uh, uh, explodes the problems that these young folks have in kind of coming to grips with their own lives. Uh, from a, uh, an emotional perspective, as you talked about somebody speaking and the voice coming out wasn't them, 
in my head, I'm thinking that must be absolutely horrifying. Absolutely. And I appreciate that when we were, we were had an opportunity to chat just before we started and you were kind of talking about instances where people may dig in their feet. And uh, like if someone is challenged incorrectly or someone is made to feel invalidated, they may dig in their feet. When people experience gender dysphoria, that doesn't necessarily mean that they always want to transition. But when someone is invalidating to the person's experience of gender, the individual may want to transit. Well, I don't, I don't want to say the, piece, the person may want to transition just to prove the other person wrong. But what that does prevent, it prevents them from engaging in gender exploration where they could find out how they can be comfortable. Whereas instead they feel that they have to defend themselves. And it's a really tough experience to be in. Yeah, when an individual is backed in a corner, you know, the, the animal instinct of fight or flight kicks in. Uh, and we know that with so many adolescents, it's often the fight mode <laughs> that comes out first. So I'm going to dig in my heels and I'm going to just not discuss it with anybody. That's perfectly stated as uh, we know the adolescents and even teenagers kind of lack some of that brain development that occurs within our like frontal cortex. And it makes sense that they would respond that way. Absolutely. And we know that the responses that they get from family and their loved ones, you know, in those formative years are, you know, carry weight for the rest of their lives. Oh, absolutely. Of course. And it's also, I mean, I would definitely would say it is tough for parents who have children that are experiencing gender dysphoria because the parents, obviously they love their children. Even if the parents don't disagree, that does not indicate that they don't love their child, even though the child may be feeling unloved because the parents' disagreement. Within my own personal subjective experience, the vast majority of parents I worked with were so pro-transition that that also impacted how the individual explored themselves. So when I would work with transgender youth, or not, they're youth experiencing gender dysphoria, I would have parents say, you know, let's get them on hormones right away. Let's let's, and I I feel the response was just like if I had a broken arm, my my parents would want me to have my broken arm in a cast right away, and so I felt that a lot of parents wanted that, but what they don't understand is the tr um, the treatment that goes with uh, gender dysphoria. A lot of that comes on gender exploration and helping someone identify who they are and how they can feel comfortable. And a lot of people don't want surgeries. A lot of people may not necessarily even want hormone replacement therapy. And it's uh, hard for people who are cisgender, who live within a binary of male and female, to be able to understand that someone can feel comfortable within a gender that does not make sense to us, but it makes them feel comfortable. So I, I could see it like both ways. Parents that may be non-affirming and then parents that may be too affirming and encouraging the child to transition, which is also not a good thing as well. In many cases, you've got the parents trying to fix the issue on either side of it. No, you can't be like that. This can't be happening. Or, okay, you're ready. We're going to trans. Let's, let's go for a transition. Instead of just doing, you know, the most important clinical lesson I ever learned through all my training was sometimes you just have to say, wow, that really sounds difficult. <laughs> Absolutely. And that ability. So the, um, for the listeners out there, there are varying ways of working with transgender people. And I use the WPATH standards of care. That stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And you could download the standards of care 
for free on their website. And when you look at the, the job of the clinician, it's not our job to tell the person who they are. It's not our job to tell them what to do. It really is our job to listen and explore and hear the person tell us who they are and where they're at. And then from there, we base the treatment plan on that. When we talk about, um, we talk about the experiences of parents that just want to fix, the, when a parent sees a child or biologically male child experiencing gender dysphoria, the assumption is then he must be a female trapped in that body and therefore want to transition all the way to female. And the WPAS standards of care really encourage us to do gender exploration to help the, the individual identify within themselves or even try things out before taking any big steps. It's, it's a, it is a process. When you kind of tie everything that you just said into um, the substance treatment and recovery, again, I'm going to say community, but the, the system, we're not supposed to be directive, but there is a lot of direction going on that shouldn't be happening in our field. Um, that's clear. You have, you know, this is my way, so everybody should follow it. Um, and so you see that, and I think that can create, from what I'm hearing, some, you know, some more difficulty for uh, folks experiencing gender dysphoria um, because the, and that have substance use issues because it can be oftentimes inappropriately very directive rather than exploratory and letting a person determine what their best path is. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate you saying that because substance use is very time limited. Substance use treatment is time limited, right? whether it be inpatient, part like outpatient um, or IOP. And so within that, the individual has to learn new coping strategies to not use substances. And because of time-limited treatment, there may be some instances where we may want to jump the gun and just tell the person what to do. And it makes sense. However, with that, though, when we provide transgender treatment, we want to kind of dial that part back and definitely hear the individual explain to, to us who they are. It makes sense that we would want to help someone, but this is... Even if, even if I was transgender, working with a transgender patient, despite the fact that I'm trans, doesn't mean that that person's outcome is going to be the same as my outcome. So we cannot tell them what to do. Within substance use, a lot of people that are in the field have also experienced some substance use disorders themselves. And through AA and some of their own treatment or NA, they have developed really good coping, coping skills and a package that works for them. And many times we may, we may want to share that package with substance. I'm sorry, with transgender treatment, it's not that way. We really have to take that back seat and listen. And I think what we're talking about here is and we're kind of outlining without saying it, the importance of recovery supports in an individual and building recovery capital that works for the individual that we may be have in treatment because it is short-term recovery is much more long-term and recovery supports are going to be there for the long-term. So we oftentimes will identify recovery capital based on what we think it would be for an individual family, this, that, instead of saying, you know, what's your support system? Where do you have some strengths out there that you can use to maintain your recovery while moving forward with your life? Perfectly stated. Absolutely. And that recovery capital, I really appreciate you saying that because for people that are experiencing gender dysphoria, 
and this is where some similarities with the LGB populations can come in, is that through the coming out process, they may feel disconnected from their primary supports. And within that, they may not know who they can connect with or where they can go to. And that makes long-term recovery limited if the person does not have resources. And I know that the next time we speak, this will be a topic of, of our conversation in terms of developing treatment. But it seems as if kind of the the thought process and the frame of mind that somebody goes into when using true motivational interviewing skills would really be effective in helping somebody kind of explore what's going on if they're uh, gender dysphoric. And because you're really, you're trying to get that person to talk about what's important to them to move forward. Yes, absolutely. I love open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summarizing. And specifically, as you talk about, you know, the motivational interviewing aspect of it, just using those basic skills builds a really good therapeutic rapport, despite the fact that we may not have endured everything that our, the people that we work with have endured. So having that opportunity to just use those basic skills, especially with someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria, really allows us to hear and to grasp at least a plan to allow the person to drive themselves where they want to go. As I'm, we're speaking and I'm in my head imagining the effectiveness of it, it seems you know really pretty clear. The only time I've seen motivational interviewing skills not really work is with my son when he was an adolescent. Because when I said to him, what I'm hearing is you're angry with me. So you're saying <laughs> you're angry with me. Wow. I, I'm getting that you're really mad at me. All that did was make him more angry. And I have to admit I did it because it was entertaining. yes uh absolutely and and, you know i appreciate you saying that and with that though that also comes when there are when with clinicians working with youth with co-occurring substance use disorders and uh gender dysphoria we still have to do our best especially when we're exploring gender to utilize those skills and as much as may drive the kid nuts by saying what i'm hearing is at least though we're even if they get frustrated with us by saying that we're at least making sure that what we're hearing is right and when someone is doing gender exploration we absolutely have to hear where they are how they identify what makes them feel better we have to hear that if we are not in alignment with that we may make a treatment recommendation or may take a step in treatment which would not be appropriate for the patient we often forget if we really want to know where something's at, all we have to do is ask them. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's an incredible clinical skill to ask a simple question. I think my son's response, and he's 25 now, so he may laugh at this, was more based on my tone of voice and the smirk on my face <laughs> when I said that. <laughs> you know, that was just an apparent coping with an adolescent child. <laughs> and um, I, what I love about... Oh, we have so much to talk about. I, and uh, within that, like, I, I feel bad from deviating from the script, but I just have to highlight I, what I really appreciate about what you were saying. And you you obviously you love your son and even using the skills, but your, your affect also was saying something. And our affect as clinicians also says something as well. Yeah. And so countertransference is huge when working with transgender populations. And I know we'll eventually we'll talk about that. Yeah. yeah. But, it, you know, we, we're going to pick up on their transference and, and the counter-transference is going to be significant. 
Um, you know, I appreciate you talking so much about uh, gender dysphoria. That kind of goes in, kind of moves my next question off. But one thing that um, that I don't think that we have a really good handle on, kind of uh, in the big picture, is can you tell us more about some of the various non-binary gender identities? Um, because I think that in our world we're so focused on the binary, male or female, that different identities are hard for us to grasp. Absolutely. And there are numerous gender identities out there. So the unfortunate thing is I'm only touching on a few with yes. this. And I've read varying research and varying conceptualizations of gender. And I've, I was actually reading this past week a publication where someone recommended that instead of a gender binary or several different genders, there are gender galaxies out there. I mean, that's without yeah. number. Part of that, I remember a couple of years ago reading where people had identified 150 different genders. Wow. There are a lot. And within that, I understand how it could be hard for someone who is cisgender to try to be on top of all of that. So I'm going to just mention a few of the uh, a few of the things that we see pretty regularly. Uh, a few of the gender identities. One of them is agender, and um, someone who who feels that they have no gender identity. They just they don't feel connected mm -hmm. to masculine or feminine. Okay. Aprogender um, is uh, for someone who feels separate from male and female, while also still being very between male and female, and also having a pull towards one. Okay. So aprogender. So like, let's say, for example, someone who feels connected to, let's say, womanhood, but does not completely like experience that throughout their being. Uh, Demi-boy, uh, that is someone who would identify as a he, but also feels genderless. And demi-girl is someone who identifies as a she, but also feels genderless as well. Gender expands. Oh, I can't tell if you are going to ask. No, me I'm, I'm fascinated because this is, you know, like I said, this is a learning experience for me as well. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And there, and it's okay to ask questions for sure. Definitely, please feel free. When I um, think about gender expansive, that's people that have just a wide range of gender identity and expressions. Especially, uh, it could be outside of the binary. So we think of binary as male and female he and she, people can have a gender expansive identity, which is even outside of that. When, when we look at in popular culture or kind of examples of things, you know, the singer Sam Smith has publicly come out and said he's, you know, feels gender fluid. That he yes. can, you know, and in some terms, Pete Townsend said that several years ago, Pete Townsend of The Who, when he said, I understand what a woman is going through because I've been a woman, was more of, uh, you know, people took that where it, it, wherever they wanted to, but I hear it now as more of kind of an uh, uh, expression of gender fluidity. And when I think about gender fluidity, the people I've worked with that identified as gender fluid, they would have certain aspects in certain parts of their days or even certain situations where they felt more connected to an aspect of the binary. So given a certain situation, people may feel more connected to a, a feminine aspect of themselves, other situations more masculine, 
other certain days, certain times, and just having that ability to be fluid specifically with that, that's gender, that's gender fluidity for the patients I've worked with that I've identified that. It, it, as you're saying it, to me, it's such an easy concept to grasp when I think about how every person kind of changes or, or, or uh, an emotionally healthy person can kind of alter what they're doing and who they are given the situation. But you're not the same person in every situation. So uh, the identification or the feeling more of a specific gender at a given situation um, is, is just to me more proof that, you know, life is about situational living. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate that you say that we all kind of are different in certain situations. And if we wouldn't expect a cisgender person to be the same in every situation, we can't expect someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria to feel the same in every situation. And I have a, a psychiatrist friend of mine who used to say that the difference between somebody who's, you know, normally dysfunctional versus <laughs> abnormally dysfunctional is most people can get their needs met by switching from one personality disorder to the next. So you can be passive aggressive based on the situation. But he says, truly people that struggle with that, that have a, a defined personality disorder, that's their only way to get through situations. And it's just not effective for that. Absolutely. And that's, that's what we would say with like people that aren't experiencing uh, at how they connect with themselves, their identity, feeling disconnected with that. So within within this instance, there's times where people are trying to figure out how they would want to respond. So I, I think it's hilarious. Like what what is the right disorder at the right time? <laughs> yeah, he said it to be, you know, to be flippant and funny, and it was funny, but there's some truth in it on some level. Um, or at least the, the concept is some truth in the concept and the idea. Um, you know, the numbers that I quoted in the introduction come from data that is eight years old. We know that eight years can be a lifetime in the rate of research and changes in community standards, language, ideals, issues, you name it. Eight years is a long, long time. For the transgender community as a whole, as much as we can define, um, what are we seeing today in terms of substance use disorders? Is there changes in the, the data? So it's, I really appreciate you asking this question. And when I was trying to prep for this question, it's funny because I, it's not funny. I'm sorry. It's not, that's not the right word to use. What's shocking in it is when we consider substance use disorders, we're not considering the use of illicit hormones. So for example, if there was an athlete that was using testosterone or using steroids, that would be a substance use disorder. Correct. And yep. so what we see with people that are experiencing gender dysphoria is they will abuse steroids that they will get on the black market. And steroids, although, I mean, some, they're, some are synthetic built off natural compounds. And while the expectation is that it makes the person feel more connected to themselves, we have to also recognize that steroids do play a role in the psychological experience of the individual. So if someone is born biologically female and starts to take testosterone, they could experience higher levels of aggression and increased sex drive. If someone was born biologically male and taking estrogen, they could feel overwhelmed with emotions and could experience increased depression and anxiety as well. 
So when we kind of consider substance use disorders, what's kind of scary is that that stuff is kind of left out within that. So there's the traditional, we're, we're seeing right now, a huge wave of you know opiate use disorder, um, also like marijuana use and alcohol use as well. But the hormones, the, we have to like consider that and how that use is also a disorder as well. People putting themselves in harmful situations to get hormones. And some of that could be due to a lack of education about services or even a lack of services as well. But to be honest, I hadn't even considered that. It happens to make a lot of sense. One of the individuals that I interviewed in an earlier podcast was a former football player uh, named Tony Mandarich, who uh, was very successful in college, had long periods of uh, steroid use in college, not as a pro player, and he wasn't able to continue a pro career um, for, for many reasons. But he talked about being a different person when he was doing the steroids. Um, that it, it completely changed his personality um, and it fit for a football player, the, the additional aggressiveness and things, but it wasn't necessarily good for life. Absolutely perfectly stated. Unfortunately, you, you can't just determine that, you know, that, okay, I'm only going to use the increase in aggression and things like that on the football field, or you can't just, I'm assuming it's the same with hormones. My reactions are things based on, on the chemicals and composition of the hormones. I can't just determine that I'm only going to use that in given situations. Absolutely. If it, if it was that easy, we, we all would have learned when and how to shut things off right after adolescence. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so when you had mentioned alcohol, marijuana, and opioids, are, are those what you would consider to be most commonly used uh, in the transgender community? Yes. And so within that, the people that are transgender are also at increased risk of being abused and uh, also, what's the word? I'm gonna say victimized, that's not the right word. When someone, like for like, uh, they're at higher risk for like sex abuse as well and engaging in sex work. Mm -hmm. There are certain people out there that are only attracted to someone who would be a trans woman. So someone who would have breasts and a penis. Mm -hmm. and or trans individuals who have no resources, sometimes they experience some sex work to help get their needs met. And there are people out there that will pay money for that. So we see some of the additional substances, alcohol, marijuana, opiate use, also as a way to kind of cope with some of that as well. I'm not saying that happens to everyone, but right. there we do see that with a lot of... Uh, male to female patients I've worked with, they had reported at least engaging in some of that. Just going off the cuff for, for a second, what I'm envisioning is, is for many transgender individuals, finding a, the community that they call their own, friends, et cetera, often that may take place in a bar. They, people get together. So that's going to increase the risk of you know, of alcohol use, obviously, but of, of increased alcohol use to problem level. Absolutely. And it makes sense that people would kind of connect in some of those areas where other traditional places where people might find support, such as churches, may be invalidating for someone who would experience gender dysphoria. When you say that, I kind of, I hate to like do this plug, but one of the best places I, I was ever 
I, I didn't work for them, but when I worked at the Westchester Medical Center, I, we would have a, a lot of connection with each other. And that was the Loft Center in White Plains. Uh, they were just absolutely amazing because they would have they would have AA groups and NA groups, and they would they would have all these additional supports for it was for the all members of the LGBTQ communities, and and they also had very specific services as well. So just even knowing what services are out there is really helpful to try to help the client because they may only connect with people at a bar or they may only feel less dysphoric while they're using a substance. It's a pretty tough situation and it makes sense as to how it's hard to, to have someone maintain long-term recovery while they're still living with symptoms of dysphoria. You know, there are uh, additional roadblocks, I guess, towards being able to sustain recovery, roadblocks that, that they have to get over um, because it's much more than just putting down the drug and drug, the drink, whatever. You have to deal with all of the internal stuff and you're just kind of compounding it with issues of, you know, th- whether it be uh, gender identity, whether it be gender dysphoria, whether it be sexuality, all these things coming to play or, you know, one or all. Uh, can create more barriers for somebody to find some long-term recovery because they may not be able to get the supports or not know of the supports uh, that may be there, but then again, like you said, may not be there. Absolutely. The good news is with the internet, and I'm I, obviously I don't like COVID, but I think what COVID has allowed us to do is it has allowed us co- to connect more virtually. And there are a lot of online support groups. There are a lot of online groups that people can become connected with. And when I think about traditional self-help groups, you, you self-help groups are usually manned by people in recovery themselves, not necessarily counselors that have training. But even within like self-help groups, it would I, I, you would still have people that would want to be sponsors and still want to help. And they may not necessarily say the right things, and they may say things which they may misgender the individual at times. That doesn't mean that they are any less wanting to help. The only thing that stinks is when that does happen, the individual who is experiencing being misgendered may then struggle then to reconnect with the self-help group. And certainly an added uh, an added dimension and, and very difficult. Uh, again, one that, that hadn't occurred to me initially. Um, you know, we recognize there's no single causality for anyone that, that with a substance use disorder, what are some of the driving factors? And you touched on a couple, you know, for the use of substances in the transgender community. You had talked about um, feeling more comfortable if substances are involved because of the intoxication. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, potential abuse. Uh, you talked about other traumatic events. You know, certainly we recognize, uh, you know, Sexual abuse, oftentimes the sex work itself can be traumatic, um, even though it's a, a need that the person has. It's the way they meet a need. Uh, what are some of the other things that that tend to drive the use in the transgender community? Well, I, I can't stress this enough. You kind of already highlighted this, but I, I really can't stress this enough. So experiencing that dysphoria, let's say you get a headache and headaches are terrible. And you know you would take something for a headache and the headache will eventually go away. But imagining 24 hours a day, every day, that headache being there, that's what gender dysphoria is like. Wow. There all the time. I mean, you it's there. 
and I'm I'm not trying to like go overboard and like trying to sell this. Uh, I can I'm, even when working with with patients that are transgender, they may say there would be some instances where they are distracted or invested into something where they're not paying attention to that experience of dysphoria. And though that feeling is there all the time. Yeah. So when I when I first think about some of the some of the factors contributing to substance use disorder, that's the first thing that pops up. The second thing that pops up though is just the just the process of coming out, how life is entirely changed. Even if people are supportive, you would still find people treating you differently. And then that may not be of anyone's fault. So for example, when people transition from male to female, they'll find that they now have people treating them differently because they're female. And they may be catcalled or they may have people uh, want to open doors for them, but it's just a weird feeling. So, and then the other way around for people that are transitioning from female to male may have instances where they may be struggling and people would not offer them help because they're a, a guy and guys are supposed to be able to do that on their own. So there's a lot of like minutia that kind of goes in with this that also oh. contributes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, any final thoughts uh, before we wrap things up? Yeah, I first off, I just really want to thank you for all of your amazing work, specifically here in the state, and also for the people linked up with the CCB. I think having any opportunity to talk about this is a good thing. I would just like to share with the listeners out there, it's okay to have your own belief system. It's okay to struggle with these concepts. And it's makes sense if you do. I, I just have a firm belief, though, that every person that sits across from me deserves 100% of the best care. And what we know is when we do not at least try to affirm an individual, we will push them away and make it more likely that substance use, co-occurring mental health, any of those other things are going to be exacerbated. So even if you may struggle to use the person's preferred pronouns as a treatment provider, we can we can use a person's pronouns and keep them involved with treatment so they can get better regardless of what the problem is, or we could invalidate them and then have this person suffer and have higher likelihood of all the things that come with co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. So for all the people out there, you, I, I believe that who you are, your genuineness is great as a provider and that's useful and even if you're struggling with this, I always encourage people, please do your best to be affirming because that allows for the individual to really explore themselves. And that goes right into something that's common in substance use disorder treatment and recovery is, is uh, Scott Miller's work on uh, you know why people change and recognition that the therapeutic relationship is the most important thing that we have a big hand in that will guide people to change. Um, that affirming uh, relationship, a level of comfort, of safety, how we relate to the person is is important. So that in, involves, and here's a plug for next one, <laughs> dealing with issues of um, you know, codependent, not codependence. Oh my God, uh, God I'm a blank here. Co-occurring disorders treatment. Co no. Um, Countertransference, excuse oh, me, okay. Um, dealing with countertransference, dealing with uh, boundaries, dealing with uh, a safe environment, all while being genuine, um, mm -hmm. being ourselves, because if we're not, people can see through that. 
Um, and I think uh, a thing I learned many, many years ago, um, actually in bartending school, was <laughs> people will forgive you for making a mistake. People will not forgive you for being a jackass. Yes, absolutely. So um, we're not asking for great change from people other to change themselves. Um, people can still have beliefs, but be educated and don't turn those personal beliefs into discrimination of any kind. Absolutely. Perfectly stated. Great. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Dr. Frederick Dombrowski for lending us some of his time, some of his insight and his expertise to really increase our understanding of a truly marginalized community. Now, join us next time for the second in our two-part series on the unique needs of transgender people when we discuss uh, improving our ability to develop effective treatment options, both as prof single professionals and as a system. Dr. Dombrowski, I look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you very much. Have a good one.